the point of investigating what is free will and how does it work is to gain as much free will as possible for oneself. And then by extension, others as well, because then you're going to be like, wow, you seem to have a lot of control over your life. And you're like, well, let me tell you about the CTMU. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Mind Matters. My name is Adam Daniels, and we've got a full crew today. I'm joined by Harrison Keeley, uh, Lucien Koch, and hiding in the corner is Elon Martin. <laughs> um, so in one of our previous shows, I think it was the last one that we did, uh, Harrison made mention of the fact that he was ge getting into uh, a, how would we describe him? A an independent researcher, philosopher, um, logician, um, also known as the smartest man in America. In the universe. In the universe. Certainly one of the <laughs> smartest people on the planet right now. Um, Christopher M. Langan. Um, and so as he brought up to us a, a number of his uh, talks and articles and papers and ideas, uh, we decided that we would get one of his books. And so today we will be going over Christopher Langan's The Art of Knowing, um, Expositions on Free Will and Selected Essays. And so this is a, it's not a very long book. It's only 130 pages or so. Um, but he covers quite a bit of ground going over things like free will, um, the theory of theories, um, cybernetics, uh, moral relativism, um, ecology, uh, absolute truth. It's just a total wide ranging uh, number of topics that he covers in this little book. And he does so um, in a way that's relatively uh, approachable um by you know your everyday person um but of course you know some of these ideas are very complex and so they're very difficult um for people who aren't well versed um in his theories prior um but also in the theories in general but um but yeah it's a fascinating to just kind of journey through the mind of uh someone who's really try because what he was trying to do with the book was uh give people a an out i guess you could say for things such as free will for things such as uh moral um absolutism um or an escape from moral relativism um and things of of those natures and i think he does so in a pretty creative way um and so i guess we could start off with a bird's eye view. Um, Harrison, if you want to start there with kind of like a broad overview of maybe <laughs> um, what what is Chris Langan's like approach? What is his um, thoughts? Because it's what he basically has come up with in all of his writings and everything is something called the cognitive theoretic model of the universe. Um, and it seems that by approaching it uh, approaching the world that we live in um, as if it is coherent and rational and that we can understand it, that we can model it in a way that allows us 
the best access to all of its mysteries and wonders. Um, so if you want to try and give a... Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, no, that's, uh, that's a difficult, uh, it's a difficult, difficult place to, to start, but, um, well, maybe I'll, I'll start with a, just, it might be easier to do a little bit of historical stuff here. So the first chapters in this book are a series on free will and the kind of overarching, um, theme of them is Newcomb's paradox, which was a paradox by, I think he was, I think he, he was a scientist, maybe, a, maybe a physicist. I can't remember who, um, who Newcomb was. Um, but it had to do with, um, like time and free will and causation and reverse cause a retro retro causation. Is that the word? Um, and it's this paradox from like a 60, 70 years ago or something like that. And so he wrote a paper in 1989, like a really complicated technical paper on his solution to this paradox in which he first published some of his ideas on what was then called the computational theoretic model of the universe. And I read that paper and uh, it was a bit too technical for me. I didn't really understand a lot of the, like the, a lot of the formal math that he was using in it, but he basically goes over a lot of those ideas in a very relatively, very relatively um, simple form in these essays. So he's talking about Newcomb's paradox and he kind of, you know, he uses funny and, and fun examples um, uh, and little narratives to get across the points and to, to get across the ideas, um, you know, the, the ideas in this paper and the, the main conclusions he comes to. And so the, his basic solution, um, and you know, I'm, I can't get into the details cause I'm not well versed enough in them, but his basic solution to this paradox, which had to do with basically something like a perfect predictor, um, someone who would know, who has a, a perfect track rec record of guessing whether a person will do a or B and then what that person will do in such a, in such a scenario, whether they will, um, trust in this perfect track record that this predictor has, or if they will use their knowledge of, um, and their, you know, intuition and understanding of, of time and causality to say, well, no, he can't possibly know this. Therefore, therefore I'm going to go with, um, with the fact that, that, the, the options are already set. Like basically it's like you've got a thousand dollars in one box and a million dollars in the, in the other box. And if you choose to go with only one, then what is it? If you choose to go only, only, only with one, then you lose all the money. But if you, if you go with two and he guesses wrong, then you get to keep the extra thousand dollars, something like that. I can't, you know, I can't remember the exact details, but if you, if your premise is, well, the money's already in the box or it isn't. So it, it doesn't matter if he's predicted it or not because it's already there. And so it's this kind of like, you know, mental problem, which may or may not have any relation to, or, or much relation at all to the way the actual, the, the world actually works. That's a separate question, but how do you solve this? How do you solve this paradox? And so his conclusion was to think about it in terms of this computational theoretic model of the universe. And so that was the first time that he, you know, put into print the, um, some of his basic ideas about this model of the universe that he had. And so in the decades since he's 
he's developed it further and written, a, you know, written a, a whole bunch about it and uh, on various essays, either in um, kind of independent journals or lately um, in some peer reviewed academic journals, like I think it's called Cosmos and History is the journal that most of his recent papers have appeared in. And also including the a 2002 paper where he laid out the cognitive theoretic model of the universe, kind of a basic overview of it. Apparently he's working on it, or apparently he's been working on a, like a full length book on it for, I don't know, 20 plus years. And, but that one is yet to be released. So hopefully, um, hopefully that'll come out sometime. Um, I've heard, uh, heard online that he's working on several books. So we'll see. Hopefully those will come out soon. And the basic idea is he's trying to essentially, um, and he would say that he has succeeded in creating a, an overall theory of everything. Now, usually the, the term theory of everything is used to describe kind of like a, a physical theory of everything, which would be like, um, like a, a unified, um, what do they call it? Unified like field, field theory, theory or yeah. something like that, like a, an equation that will incorporate all of the all of the physical equations so that all, you know, all, all other physical theories can be derived from them or something like that. Like an EMC e equals MC squared, but different. Yeah. So incorporating like yeah. electromagnetism and relativity and quantum physics. Yeah, and combining... Uh uh, especially quantum physics and re relativity theory, right? Because there's like a inherent contradiction. So that's kind of like the, the big hunt um, for a supposedly existing universal physical theory, basically that um, covers everything that we can observe, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the idea to get to the, to the bottom of, um, of the of the physical world, what what drives the what animates the the physical world in terms of uh, a physical theory, right? So so mm -hmm. I guess it's not exactly um, comparable because um, he goes beyond the the physical, right? So mm -hmm. we we can get into that, uh, right? And so that's why his theory doesn't resemble like a unified field theory. It's it's not a strictly physical you know, physical mathematical, um, equation or theory, because he would say, um, and he does, you know, in various of his writings that a theory of everything should be literally that a theory of everything. And what do you include in everything? Well, by everything, you have to include not only mathematics and physics, but you have to include consciousness and you have to include basic things about the overall structure of reality and the things that underlie physics and mathematics. So your, your theory of everything should be meta-mathematical and metaphysical. So it's a, a metaphysical theory of everything. So he's essentially taking, um, taking philosophy to, to, to another level, kind of like what, uh, I mean, Whitehead attempted this too with process philosophy in the, like in the, I think it was the twenties and thirties that he developed that. And, and he did that. He, he came up with his, with his philosophy in order to try to incorporate the latest, um, scientific advancements of the time, which were like quantum theory and relativity. So Langan is taking kind of a, a similar, um, similar, similar starting point is, um, a theory to account for not only the, the physical theories that, uh, that have been developed, you know, throughout time and especially more recently and including like the recent developments, like I think it was in only in 1998 that, um, 
you know, observing like redshift and, and things that, uh, that physicists and astronomers and astrophysicists came to the, the conclusion that the universe must be expanding and, uh, you know, expanding at an accelerated rate. And so to try to, in, to try to have a theory that will account for all of, not only all of this physical evidence, but all of the mental aspects as well. So how do you have, how do you create a theory that not only accounts for mathematics, you know, why does mathematics work? What is mathematics? Why does mathematics seem, or not only seem, but why does mathematics have a relationship, um, a relation to the physical world? Why can physical, um, physical relations and phenomena be accurately more or less accurately or very accurately described by mathematical formulae. How, what's the connection between the two? And since mathematics and reasoning about these things is a mental phenomenon, it's a cognitive, a cognitive process, how does cognition and, and thinking about relate to that reality? What, is the, what, what are the links between them? So his theory is, is this structure to, to account for not only the reality of all those things, so to acknowledge the reality of them, but then to fit them together in a, in a logical framework in, in which they all work. So something that's comprehensive in the sense that it takes into account um, all of the elements of experience, which would include the physical world as well as the, the mental world, and that is coherent, so it all fits together. It's not like you come up with a theory, that, like imagine coming up with a theory on mathematics and physics where mathematics worked, but it had no relation to physics, and the, the physical world didn't, didn't, um, didn't follow any mathematical rules. So, you know, all, all of a sudden, none of our physical equations work. It wouldn't be it would be, it's hard to imagine such a world because it wouldn't have any order. It wouldn't fit together and it would be incoherent. And well, it, it might be just impossible for such a, for such a world to actually exist. So the fact that it does exist, the fact that there are these relations, how do we take that into account? So that's kind of like an, like leaving out a whole lot. That's kind of a basic, a, a basic overview of some of the things that, you know, the CTMU or Chris Langitz CTMU is trying to do. And so one of the things that, that becomes a part of that is free will. So um, <clears throat> if you were to ask Chris Langitz, well, does free will exi exist? He'd just say yes. And then he might give a, uh, well, he might say yes, obviously, and then, then give a more of a, an explanation after that, because free will is one of those things that kind of ha has to be almost like a starting point in, in, in metaphysics. So you'll, you'll get a lot of, um, a lot of philosophers who might, you know, who might try to argue that, uh, well, not just philosophers, but philosophers and, and scientists who will argue that free will doesn't exist or can't exist. And they've got their, you know, they've got their reasons for saying so, but, uh, but they don't really make much sense. And one of the things that, Chris Langan brings up in this series of articles is one of the one of kind of the, the go-to arguments for and, and bits of evidence that people who deny free will will bring up is the um, Libé, Libet um, uh, experiments. Do you know how, how he pronounces his last name, Luke? Is it Libet, Libé? Um, I would think that it might be Libet. I, I assume hmm. he, it's, a, it's a Hebrew name. So okay. I would say it's, I, I mean, I assume. Um, okay, we'll so go with that assumption. must be Libet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Libet, this, this was the famous thing. I mean, if, if any of our viewers or listeners haven't heard of it, it's this um, 
they set out or did you want to do you want to explain the experiment luke or uh yeah yeah uh, so basically um it's pretty simple um he uh, the part participants um they were shown like a big clock you know where with the handle that kept turning um like at pretty fast speed so faster than a normal clock um and uh the participant were told they should i think like lift a finger or something like that you know like make a uh, execute a basic movement and basically decide you know for themselves whenever they want to want to do that and and the the moment they take the decision so to speak um they needed to note the time um or the the position of the of the handle right so that uh, he could then you know kind of uh, look at when when did they take the ah, and of course <laughs> uh, most important part they were like hooked to a brain scanner um while doing so uh so um they they could like record their their what's you know like the, the their brain uh, light lighting up um like which regions and stuff um and so what they found you know supposedly uh was that um there's like a, a readiness potential that's what they call them basically the the brain in certain areas of the brain uh associated with like um decision making and and things like that or conscious um decisions that would like uh, there would be a potential that that builds up um and starts building up before the best participants reported that they took the decision right to lift the finger or whatever it was um so um yeah and and that's was basically the um uh, what led to the argument of like the no free will people that, uh, oh, see, I told you so, you know, there is no free will because the brain starts the whole thing even before the particip participant like self-reports that he actually takes the, took the decision. Uh, so that, that was the thing. And um, yeah, uh, I mean, that there have been like from the get-go, like uh, lots of arguments uh, have been lots of arguments against this interpretation, right? Uh, so, I mean, maybe we can just very briefly go into that. Um, the thing is, uh, first of all, that Libet himself, he um, he uh, interpreted it that in a way that it is still possible to to stop the movement, you know, to to execute or like to to use a V two power, I think he called it, um, so that even uh, if let's say we don't really take the decision. It is somehow determined, you know, by our brain. So whatever, um, we can still stop it because um, there was still enough time, you know, between the the uh, the decision making and the execution of the actual movement, you know, for there to be like, um, yeah, to to basically stop the whole thing. So that would already throw out the the free will. Uh, the anti-free will argument, right? Because uh, stopping something is also free will. So, but uh, in free fact, won't. You know, the, the whole thing is, yeah, for, yeah, exactly. That's that's how the, how they put it, I think. And uh, uh, but that, that it, we can go even further because it's the, the whole thing, you know, like doesn't really make all that much sense, you know, because um, as some people have pointed out, for example, the 
um, taking a decision might be more a matter of like weighing different options, you know, and then choosing one. Uh, so that if would explain why there's like already before a participant reports that he took the decision, there's something going on in the brain because right, maybe the 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 different options they they're sorting themselves out. You know, like it's I mean you can kind of see that by introspection, right? If you if you try to put yourself in the shoes of of the participant, you could you would you could uh, at least I you know can see um, how. You know, your brain will start like, okay, do, do I take the decision now or do I wait till the handle, you know, maybe reaches the 12th position? On, so there's already something going on and it, excuse me, it kind of builds builds up until you, okay, now, now I do it, you know? So it's, it's pretty, um, it's, it's a bit shady, you know? I mean, it's not shady, but it's... Uh, let's put it mildly it, it's it's open to interpretation <laughs> um and and langan has a very interesting interpretation actually um that he he presents in in that essay uh, which i really liked um and he basically says that we should i mean one thing about langan maybe in general he's like he's all meta you know? <laughs> so that's kind of like his thing right so um, whatever, whenever it's not, whatever it is, you know, he says like, okay, what is it that makes this possible? So that's always the way he thinks, right? So he, um, so if you have, a, as you explain, Harrison, um, if you have like a, a theory about, you know, the physical world or like about reality, he, he asks, okay, but, um, this theory must also include the theory itself. Right. So it, it can't be just, you know, a theory about reality. It is also a theory about the theory about reality. It, because it, you know, if, if reality is all there is, then the theory itself is in there too. So that's always how his mind seems to work. Um, and with the Libet experiment, he says, okay, um, there's a decision to lift the finger or whatever, but, um, what makes this decision, you know, what is the, the context or the framework in which this decision is embedded? And he says um, there's, there might be like a meta decision um, and the meta decision is, okay, I take part in this experiment and I'll follow the, you know, the, uh, the program that the, ex the experimenter like lays out. And this is, okay, you look at the clock and you do, uh, you, decide you know whenever and you lift the finger so he says um the whole we must look at the whole process the whole um experiment um and then the the actual free will decision might be um i participate in this experiment and these uh other like so-called decisions like i lift my finger now and i lift it now might be just you know like something that the consciousness basically delegates to the subconsciousness um, in a way that uh, it's it's like subroutines, right? So um, you don't really take a, a super conscious decision, you know, like uh, I lift my finger now, but it's like something that you do like almost in a dream state, you know, because you took the decision prior mm -hmm. to, to, to participate and then you just execute it. And, uh, but your subconsciousness reports these decisions um that's how how he sees it right so um 
So it's not that, you know, when I lift my finger in, in the experiment, I, I take the conscious decision now to lift my finger, but it's like a, a subroutine and it just reports you. Okay. Now I, I lift the finger. I took the decision. Do you want to stop it? You know, like, uh, yes, no, no. Okay. I keep going. So that would explain uh, why there's a, this readiness potential in the brain before um, participants report it, because actually it starts in the subconsciousness and then there's the report. Okay, I'm still on the program. Is it okay? You know, and then um, it just does, does its thing. So I thought that's, that's pretty interesting and might also, um, you know, like I wrote something um, about that uh, on my Substack because I... I felt it's kind of like um, relevant also to, to you know, like daily life in a way to look at, at it in, in that way because um, uh, in, in a sense, you know, a lot of stuff that we do is is unconscious, right? Or it's not, or maybe it's like a little conscious. And, um, and I, I like this idea that a lot of it is just, you know, our, subconsciousness reporting stuff you know but it's still like basically following a program and uh, in the whole free will debate um to my mind uh it's not so much the question whether like free will doesn't exist at all or it, it, like we are super like only free will you know i mean it, it is definitely something in between and and that's where where it gets interesting right mm -hmm. well i've got a i want to kind of rephrase what you just said about the about Langen's take and I'll use an example that you might like so well first of all the you pointed out kind of it, one of those things that's obvious in retrospect but it's not obvious until someone points it out and that is so you're doing this experiment on free will and you're asking the people okay so you make the decision to to move your finger at a certain point and then tell me when you do it and so they do it and say okay well because that readiness potential came before you before you had the awareness of having made the decision then therefore you made the your you made the decision unconsciously you didn't make the decision and that uh so it must be the, the decision must have been made for you and you just assented to it or maybe you have the decision to veto it but never never was the question asked well like you said you made the decision to participate in the experiment you so you you like so you've already told yourself okay I am going to move my finger at a particular time. You've already made that choice that, that you are going to move your finger. It's just now a question of when you're going to move the finger. So you've, so you could even, you could even at least hypothesize that you completely freely made that choice that in the next two minutes, I'm going to move my finger at various times, you know, maybe five times. And so you've, you've yeah. already made that choice. Definite. Yes, I'm going to do this. And so now it's just a matter of when precisely are you going to do it? And who knows, you, you could have, you could have said, um, you could have processed originally, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to make these decisions. And now this is just a hypothetical. I don't think this is the way it works, but you could have said, I'm going to move my finger in 30 seconds, 15 seconds after that, seven seconds after that, and 38 seconds after that. And so you could already have all of your choices made in that instant that you decided to to make the thing and that may those I may mean, be for, 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 for us uh, ocd nerds uh, you know it might it might actually work like that yeah. right so yeah. you okay i i participate in the experiment that means you know like i wait precisely till it's at the you know 
Devon seven o'clock position because I happen to like seven o'clock, you know, and then maybe nine because it's a nice sequence, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. <laughs> it might actually well, work like that. And so, that was also, by the way, a criticism that others have made, you know, that that people basically that's how people do it, right? They they watch the the handle and then wait till it hits like a certain a certain position because it's just how humans are right they they just mm -hmm. like to play games like that so that's another thing <laughs> mm -hmm. well so the example i had in mind was piano playing so i i took piano lessons when i was younger i stopped you know when i was fairly young but i know you play the piano luke and I, I and i'm sure that you've had the experience sight reading so this is when you have a, a piece of sheet music in front of you and you might be playing it for the first time maybe not maybe it's a piece you already know but Typically, what piano players do when they're sight reading is that they'll read ahead. So they won't be they won't be looking at the notes that they're currently playing. They'll be looking either, you know, if, if you were like me, you might be only looking one or two, you know, quarter notes ahead. Or you might, if you're a professional, you might be looking at like whole bars ahead. And so what what you're essentially doing is you're you're reading the music and then you're essentially telling your body, okay, play that as you're reading ahead. So you're not even looking at the music that your fingers are playing. You've, you're, you've already looked at the music that your fingers are now playing. And so your body's like keeping catch up with, with your mind, which is kind of reading into the future. So you're planning your future finger movements that then get, that then if you're, if you've practiced and if you know what you're doing, your body kind of does automatically. And you find a similar phenomenon in improvisation where you say, okay, I am going to improvise and you have no idea what you're going to play, but somehow you end up playing something that works and that sounds good. And it's not like at any moment you say, okay, you were, you were consciously thinking, okay, well in, in you know, at, 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 on this bar, I'm going to do this. And, um, and then I'm going to do this and, and then, well, cause you always, ha you also have to take into account your, the other musicians that are playing with you. Well, this person's going to do that. And then I'm going to do this. No, it all happens. It all happens in the moment. And, and so the, well, this, this brings to mind something. Um, I, I was, I've also been reading this recently, Max Planck's, um, philosophy of physics. And he has, he had something very interesting to say about free will, which, which I think is <clears throat> kind of relates pretty well to, to what's going on here. Um, so for those who don't know, Max Planck was a physicist and of course the, he discovered Planck's constant, which I believe is like the, the, the limit of measurement. So the, the smallest possible, um, like distance, for instance, um, past which you, you, cannot measure. So it's kind of like a physical limit on, on measurement or on size. Um, I don't know. I'd have to ask a physicist, but so he makes a, an analogy between that and free will. So let me just read a little bit here. So he says, perhaps the, the most impressive proof that the individual will is independent of the law of causality will be fined if the attempt is made to, to determine in, adv in advance the subject's own motives and actions on the sole basis of the law of causality by a method of intense introspection. Such an attempt is condemned to failure in advance because every application of the law of causality to the will of the individual and every information gained in this way is itself a motive acting upon the will, so that the result which is being looked for is continually being changed. 
Hence, it would be a complete mistake to attribute the impossibility of forecasting the subject's actions on purely causal lines to a lack of knowledge which might be overcome if the individual intelligence were suitably increased. Such an inference is analogous to the process of ascribing the impossibility of simultaneously determining exactly the position and the velocity of an electron to the inadequacy of our methods of measuring. The impossibility of foretelling the subject's actions on purely causal lines is not based on any lack of knowledge, but on the simple fact that no method by whose application the object is essentially altered can be suitable for the study of this object. So that maybe that was probably hard to understand, um, you know, immediately and not in context, but. Well, that, that to me also sounds very meta in a way. And uh, it just gets back to um, what you were saying, I think, Luke, about there's a, a, a complexity between uh, conscious and unconscious intentionality that Langan seems to be affirming here. Uh, an interplay, uh, you were saying that there were these sets and subsets of, of intentions and, and things that are nested within our what it is we intend to do. And I think he's he's creating this framework by which we understand some of what's at play, some of what the dynamics are. Um, but ultimately, what he's saying is we needn't uh, we needn't think of uh, free will in a, a purely causal materialistic um, paradigm or or like uh, past to future linear um, uh, system. Uh, so he's he's adding uh, a greater amount of of considerations in the way that we make uh, our decisions and and what free will is probably he he is expanding the very uh, framework um, I think uh, that we can understand uh, free will to exist within and you know it it reminded me funnily enough of um, you know literature and and how you'll have a, a character. You know, you know, you 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 get their thought process, and I'm I'm absolutely not going to do this because uh, because th this character is a bastard, and and I I swear to God I'm I am I am not going to uh, acquiesce to to this plan of action. And then the very next thing that occurs in the story is that this person goes along with. Uh, the, the plan um, or aligns oneself to someone who is, uh, you know, in the conscious mind of the protagonist, you know, abhorrent or disagreeable. Um, and it's one of those those devices that that serves to show how the, you know, the, there are all of these unconscious processes that occur that may supersede or um, uh, or or add a dimension to how one uh, behaves and, and acts uh, in spite of what one consciously thinks or what one consciously doesn't want to acknowledge or admit to oneself. So it's, it, you know, he, uh, he's really, um, I think, breaking down a lot of the components of, of free will in ways that we are not used to considering. And that's what, uh, that's what I'm getting out of it so far. There is this other, um, well, I guess along with that is, and I think we touched on this before as well um, in one of our previous shows on post uh, post modernity, where uh, you will have 
a postmodern thinker, like a, a critical theorist of some sort who says, you believe X because of your social conditioning. And so then it's like, okay, well, if you are solely the, the byproduct of your social conditioning, well, then how are you allegedly able to escape it having had the same conditioning? Where And so you have this contradiction there where it, you are professing determinism and yet also by saying that you are outside of this determinism, also saying that there is such a thing as indeterminism or like that determinism isn't all that there is. Um, and so it becomes this, you know, performative contradiction of sorts. Um, That's that why I, when, when uh, Sam Harris quitted uh, rage quit Twitter. That's why I, I tweeted that that he he didn't actually rage quit Twitter. It's the Big Bang made him do it because he has no free will. Yeah, and so that's where that's where that kind of logic inevitably leads you to is is the fact that well everything you say and do is uh, a product of something of which you have no no understanding. Um, you have no um, oh gosh, what's the word? like no say in, um, but then if you, you know, talk to these people, it's like, well, they're one of the reasons why Leibet might've, uh, gone in and done his experiment was because he was curious about something and it's like, okay, well, where did this curiosity come from? Don't know. Um, but nevertheless, he chose to go after it. He chose to try and investigate it. And so that's, that's where you have, um, this complexity of free will in general, where there is obviously innate drives within a human being. Each of us has our own innate drives. Each of us has our own personality, which was shaped when we were younger. Uh, and as we got older by various experiences, um, and the way that I was thinking about it, um, in terms of, you know, how free work, free will works on these different levels was, uh, an, an example of somebody who decided that they wanted to quit smoking. So if somebody wanted to quit smoking, they would have a conscious choice saying, I want to quit smoking. But that doesn't mean that all of the sub drives within their physical system is going to immediately go along with that because it's used to you smoking. And so it's going to crave the nicotine. Uh, and so every so often your subconscious is going to be like, Hey, I could really use a smoke right now. And so then it becomes the conscious uh, choice to either acquiesce to the impulse or to say, no, I'm sticking to my goal. And whether one is able to go to do that, or one is, you know, going to acquiesce to the, uh, to the drives, to, um, to the habits, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's complicated too. And so it, it's, yeah, it's like you said, Alon, it just, he, Langan is able to take something that is, um, that is very complex on its face. And maybe like in our day-to-day -day lives, we don't necessarily think about it in these super complex terms, but then when you actually like look at it and you examine it, you're like, well, okay, so free will exists, but you have to have some, some boundaries here because it doesn't just exist in everything. Cause I don't consciously think about how much pressure I'm putting on my, on my foot when I'm jumping, I'm not consciously deciding like to use like X number of Newtons or whatever. Yeah. It's uh, like the, um, the gifts that you see online about the, the cats calculating their jumps, <laughs> yeah. right? 
It's like there's a there's a truth inherent in those memes, but it's but it's uh and that's why it's funny. It's because they're not actually doing those calculations like yeah. it, like consciously, yeah. but they are doing those calculations. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's all on a it's all on a, a, a an unconscious level, and yeah. So the question is, where are those calculations being calculated? And that's a that's, that's one a of the meta calculation. That's that's one of the things that uh, that Langdon, you know tries to fit into yeah. or, or fits into his system. Well, maybe that's yeah, and- where, where the value of all of this is, is beyond the purely speculative and philosophical. It's like, you know, so we, we have all of these drives or maybe we have these, uh, in some cases, uh, you know, physical, maybe I, maybe I eat too much sugar, you know, that that's, that's not good for me or I smoke too much or I, and, and so, I now have a better understanding that I that there are these physical and biological things that are quite capable of overriding my conscious and maybe even some of my unconscious uh, desires and intentions to become healthier. Um, you know, wh- what are what are all of the uh, and, and I don't know maybe th- maybe this is where we can get a little bit into the the practical application of of some of these ideas so far. Well, that's, uh, well, I guess the practical application of all, is that all of this is, I think, and Langan would agree, like by investigating the extent to which one can have free will, one uh, grows one's amount of free will. Yeah. So the point of investigating what is free will and how does it work is to gain as much free will as possible for oneself. And then by extension, others as well, because then you're going to be like, wow, you seem to have a lot of control over your life. And you're like, well, let me tell you about the CTMU. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Self-help group, uh, CTMU uh, style. Yeah. um, No, I I just want to say um, uh, it's interesting, the examples you you all have given, um, because I I think, you know, I I can see that in my own life as well. Um, You have these compulsions right that um d- draw you in in a certain um, direction or or c- seemingly ma- make you do things in a certain way and it's it's in that sense um it's you know you, you might argue it, we don't really have that much free will do we um you know if we're if we're honest um but uh, what i find interesting um is that sometimes you can like literally create an alternative compulsion, so to speak. Um, so, for example, um, if you take like a really hardcore decision, um, not like, you know, maybe or let's try it or something like that, but you really tell yourself, I'm going to do something, you know, and, and that's going to be my number one uh, priority um, for now. Uh, like, I don't know, like going to the gym once a week, you know, so I do that, you know, for six months, you know, come, come what may, uh, or things of that kind, right? Sometimes you, uh, we can pull it off. It seems right to, to just take a decision like that. And, uh, when I do something like that, you know, it's not that often because it's like, it's really, it's really hardcore, right? It's it, the, the things that you, you really like uh, decide where and, and, uh, with no way out, so to speak. Um, and, uh, but then it, it really creates like, um, like out of the blue, 
almost a, a compulsion that you know like that just makes you do it <laughs> and uh and and that's that's almost like um you know like like uh you in the negative a negative example like you know an addiction or something you know it's it's, al it's almost similar right so it's, but it's created by you, you know, like and like by fiat you know <laughs> by declaration um and and that's very interesting um you know with and that's also in line with the we know with his inter interpretation of the libid um experiment um where it's you basically create this subroutine that that then um you know come just plays itself out um and uh and he also says and uh you know because again he's 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 always meta um if that if that goal you know like if a goal like that um that you kind of pull off in your life uh, if it has any meaning then that which produces that goal you know i.e like the the whole system um the the whole uh system that makes this goal possible also has meaning um so i i find that kind of reasoning interesting because then he it it goes into like teleology and and all of that uh, that he also talks about a lot that there the whole thing you know actually has um has also a meaningful goals and uh, it follows just from the observation that as individuals you know we see that there are actually meaningful goals on a, on an individual level and it follows that the whole system must also have goals otherwise it's just um you cannot fit it together basically and uh, so the, a, a free will maximization would also be in that sense um uh, contributing to the whole systems or like reality as such if you will like goal so yeah so i brought it back from the self-help group to the <laughs> to the philosophical speculation <laughs> but uh, maybe it goes together well then do we want to uh do we want to keep on with this or do we want to try moving on into uh another one of the chapters that uh langan talks about um because he's got a few different ones um well, the one that was sticking out to me uh, was the the one on um, morality, um, because I thought he gave a really good, uh, very simple heuristic. You know, there was a lot of you know breaking things down and teasing things apart, um, but it all kind of like boiled down to a and a a very basic heuristic similar to you know the way he approached free will where it's like yes free will exists but there's all of these things and he kind of you know lays it out there and then he kind of comes down to you have free will and it's essentially like meta you know meta goals or just like goals overarching goals and you know you have all these subroutines and things that kind of like help you to reach those goals and that's kind of how free will works in a rough way and for his um moral heuristic essentially it boiled down to uh the golden rule which is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you and i thought that was like i thought this i mean it makes sense to me as as a form of like moral absolutism um as a means of escaping moral relativism which is you know the idea the idea that what is right and what is wrong is completely dependent on the person. 
which leads into, you know, a bunch of different problems. You can use the Israelis and the Palestinians as an example of where moral relativism leads to intractable conflict, you know, intractable, inevitable, you know, and unresolvable conflicts. Whereas if you take yourself, if you take the moral relativism and, you know, you set it to the side and you just look at each group and you say, what would I want someone in their position to do to me? Or, you know, what would I want done to me if I was in that position? Being able to step out of oneself and into another person's shoes to see what a guiding principle would be. Um, that's not purely subjective. You know, it's not completely dependent on how I feel. Um, and in that sense, I can't just justify my own actions because it's me doing it, which would be psychopathic. Everything for a psychopath that they do is right and justified because they're the ones doing it essentially. And so this, this becomes a way out of that, which has created, you know, a number of different problems in our uh, world today where it's like everyone's truth is just as good as everyone else's and everyone's viewpoint is just as good as everyone else's. Of course, that's not true in practice. Um, right. You can't disagree with it. Yeah. Cause you can't disagree with it. But, um, you know, uh, did you guys have any, um, thoughts on, uh, his take well, I'll just point out just a couple of things that he mentioned in that chapter. And one was that, um, well, let me see if I can start, I'll read part of a paragraph because <clears throat> he's talking about game theory because he brings up, he brings up game theory in this context. And, um, because a lot of, you know, eth uh, philosoph ethics, philosophers and, uh, philosophy of ethics and all that moral philosophy, all that kind of stuff, they often bring up game theory. And so it leads to certain paradoxes, right? Because um, as he writes, a player's rational attempt to maximize his own personal gain can cause him to lose. And this can, uh, so this, uh, this makes the standard theory fail, etc. So the extended version of game theory designed to resolve such paradoxes is called the theory of metagames. Jordan Peterson talks about this too. So whereas standard game theory was designed to handle games analogous to chess and bridge, in which utility functions are assigned only to competing individuals, metagame theory is designed for games in which players belong to various groups, for example, nations or religions, for which higher level utility functions are also defined. In this case, utility is a combination of personal and group factors. Because the player's true utility function which amounts which accounts for his group status differs from that obtained when he considers only himself the self is effectively stratified that is a full definition of self must include all of the external relations tying the self to other selves at all levels of organization relevant to all possible games this redefinition of self turns out to be of crucial importance across the entire ethical spectrum. And then just really quickly, he writes, the theory of metagames permits the computation of strategic optima for any real world scenario to which it can be properly applied. Its proper application requires an accurate representation of the individual players and the groups to which they belong, the rules to which they interact and the overall context they share. I'll skip a bit. 
Um, and then he says, a lopsided ethic can encourage players to defect rather than accept the globally optimal solution using stealth, subterfuge, or superior for force to achieve an inequitable outcome. So that that brings up, like, that idea brings up one of the things that I've often thought about in terms of um, philosophy of morality or, or ethics and this idea of the self. So it's like a... Um, and, and what level you're looking at, because you can look at an individual level and say that, okay, the best thing for, for this individual in this small context might be an extremely selfish thing. So it might be, you might be able to say, okay, well, this person's utility will increase exponentially if they just kill everyone else and take all their stuff. But then when you wider the context, um, well, first of all, that might be ultimately self-defeating, but then, but when you just widen the context to like what, as Langan calls it, like a global utility function, um, then you have to, you have to then look at that individual in, within a wider context. So if you're looking at it in terms of like 10 people, then one person killing everyone else is not going to be a globally um, uh, utile solution in various contexts. Who knows? Maybe in other contexts it would be. But um, at least on the level of a planet, maybe not. And so when, but it's the need to take into account those various stratified levels of the self. And so, so that's actually really helpful, or it can be really helpful, I think, to, in for personally to, to, to look at things in terms of, or to look at the decisions you make in terms of something like that. I'll say, you can say, okay, well, on the very basic level, well, this might be good for me. Well, how does this affect my family? How will this affect me in the future? How will this affect my community in the future? How will this affect the world in the future? How will this affect the entire universe? Um, when you, when you look at it in terms of those different scales, you might get different answers and different motivations. Um, and this kind of just, just that thought process relates back to the Planck quote where he's talking about, um, about free will and how it doesn't, it, it cannot be analyzed in, in terms of causality. It's a, it's a totally different, um, phenomenon there, there it, it's, it can't be scientifically investigated in, in terms of like empirical science, like you can with, uh, um, you know, billiard, billiard balls because the very act of looking at it changes it. So when you, when you start introspecting, when you start analyzing your own processes, when you start making decisions, you've got, you've got these loops going on. It's like the piano playing. You're, you're looping back and looping forwards to the things that you're going to do, the things that you have done, and you're referring back to it. And by referring back to it and then comparing that to another thing, you get this, this explosion of complexity that changes the thing that you're looking at and can change your motivation and change the way that you'll actually interact with the world and the, the changing, even the standards by which you're judging your future decisions. Yeah. Just one, one quick word about causality, because I think it's, um, it's really interesting what Collingwood, uh, wrote about it. Um, because he basically said that, uh, he, he argued, uh, from a uh, language perspective, um, in terms of etymology, uh, when you look at how the word actually came to be historically, like from the Greek and, and so, so on and so forth, um, that actually it came from a human context, right? So it's basically you cause something if you persuade another human being of doing something. So it, it, that's, it, it has its roots basically in, in human interaction. And then um, the second 
development, if you will, was then to kind of, you know, let's say your car, you know, goes, goes uphill uh, and breaks down. Um, what is the cause of that, right? So um, usually you would say it's the engine that failed and because you want to try to fix it, right? But you could also say, well, it's, it's you know, like the gravity, you know, the, the hill that, you know, caused it to, to stand or, yeah, whatever, you know. So it's, it's always you, you can, uh, but we, we tend to, to find causes where humans have an actual influence, you know, where, they, where we can fix stuff. So the cause is like, you know, like, I don't know, like the, the gear um, box or whatever, you know, so that, that's the cause. It's not, we don't say like, oh, it's, uh, it's gravity or, or whatever, you know. Um, and, and then from that, the scientific view developed, you know, or this idea that, you know, there are natural causes that kind of work independently. So it's interesting, you know, like um, uh, Planck's argument that uh, kind of cycles back to, to it that it's actually like you know we are part of it i mean and the the very idea of causality you know it comes from us you know it's like um yeah so so i found that very interesting and with regard to the game theory discussion um i think it's a it's an extremely useful way to to look at it in the kind of like you know what that does it mean for for myself in the future or like uh, what what does it mean for society or like if every if 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 i cheated now you know like and uh but you know if everybody does that then everything breaks down you know it's just can't work and and what about you know if i deal with the same person again and and on so so forth but i would add maybe that there's uh like at least philosophically it's 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 maybe a bit more difficult to make that argument um because it kind of presupposes that you that you want to know um what's going on and that you want to know what's uh and if the effect of on other people right or on 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 the whole or even on your future self that that you want to want to know these things you know and and to to find out how to 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 get better you know and and so it's it's uh and also you you, you must kind of care you know and <laughs> And this is like the uh, the question which which comes first, so so to speak. Um, uh, so, I mean, it's what I was trying to say is, you know, that it's it's not really a good argument to convince an you know a, a totally selfish person, you know, and and uh, because it, it must start somewhere, right? Um, so I, I would definitely agree that it's really a useful and good way to look at it but uh, like that but it's it's maybe like hard to to get like an objective morality out of it in in a purely like rationalistic sense right i mean it's um uh, well the way that he was describing it was the he was likening it to doing um that the golden rule was essentially like aligning oneself with the, the universal telos uh, or the yeah. teleological point of the universe. And any deviation from the golden rule was deviating from the, from the telos of God, from God's will, I guess you could even call it. Um, and so uh, in this sense, 
you know, it is an objective morality. There is an objective morality there because the telos of God is God's will. Um, and all of the things that have been but said about that. But you can choose that. otherwise, right? But you can choose otherwise. And that's not to say that, you know, you can't. Um, that is to say, however, that you would be, in a, in a sense, sinning against God. And there are yeah. consequences to that. So you can be a selfish asshole. That's perfectly. Uh, that's a and perfectly you might valid choice, thrive, right? Yeah, um, but that's that's that's, th that's not thing, to right? say that there's not <laughs> consequences for not just yourself. Although you know you could be a selfish asshole your entire life, become a billionaire, die a billionaire, and you know nothing bad ever happens to you. However, there could be global consequences uh, or nation national consequences to that selfishness that you don't pay for, but everyone else does. Or consequences to your soul. Yeah, and physical to your consequences. Maybe you, maybe you become so, so out of line with God's will that your identity disintegrates back yeah. into, into chaos and you. You become an yeah, agent I mean, for the upside that, down. Like, even, yeah, no, but you can literally see that with some people, right? I mean, that are like rich and powerful, or whatever, and they just uh, seem to go crazy and and stupid, you know, and basically <laughs> in incapable of like uh, basic um, tr truth, you know, or percep perception. Um, so there's definitely something to that, but it's just you know, like I'm. Um, I'm a bit skeptical that you can actually uh, convince people like, uh, you know, some, some of the new atheists, I think, uh, try to make these kinds of arguments, right, to that um, you can from purely like, let's say, game theoretical approach or like um, rational um, uh, thinking, you can establish some kind of like moral baseline, right? And, uh, um, and I just think I'm just a bit skeptical that... Um, uh, that you can do that if you don't take, as you you have pointed out, right, like some bigger concepts into account, like um, that it's, you know, you, you might actually, without knowing it, uh, kind of disintegrate or like sin against God or your soul or like against the, the telos, <laughs> um, the te the, take the anti-teleological path, you know, as, as Langan would put it and that's bad so that there must to be that uh, there must be a context you know and, and that's maybe a, a thing about langan's work um that's that i find really interesting uh because he takes that super rational um rationalistic approach or like left hemisphere kind of thinking right it's just is left left hemisphere on steroids um but um he does that unlike many others uh, who who kind of like are in love with that mode of thinking let's say um he actually um considers like the uh, has a has a much richer uh, metaphysical stance um and uh, considers like wider possibilities and um and so he he doesn't get stuck into this um kind of like uh, closed loop um of at the end of the day like contradictory like materialist thinking um yeah so, so i think that's 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 pretty cool well he's he keeps, a, he's the, a, he's he keeps an, the whole uh, in mind i think he, he's a mis mystic uh 
Pardon? He keeps the whole in mind. So it's like the right, the right, the left hemisphere yeah. looks at the parts and analyzes the parts in great detail, but with a without an awareness of the context or the whole. And it seems like Langan uses his like prodigious intellect to 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 look at all those details, but he's con but constantly in reference to the whole. And that's why that's why like he it's a, a theory of everything. His is he's got the he's trying to keep all of reality in mind like the entire whole whenever he's doing that which is so he seems to there seems to be a, kind of like a balance balance of hemispheres in the in the project that he's undertaken well i i thought that this paragraph um speaks to a lot of that and uh well prior to the show luke you were talking about uh you know we were going over what is the smoking gun that would explain uh langan's overall um ideas and i i haven't gotten that far into his work yet uh i think what what initially made reading anything of his so attractive was was some of some of the political statements that he's come out with that kind of align with ours and um and speak to uh speak to his being able to see and act upon and 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 describe things that are objectively true in a contemporary, uh, in our contemporary political environment, and it's like, okay, but 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 he's also thinking about these issues. I mean, that that that's quite interesting to me. But I did want to read this, which I think um, describes Harris and some of what you were just saying about being able to uh, incorporate this larger um, context or or vision for how he employs his his rational tools and uh, and sharp thinking uh, to make his points. And what he says is, what would it take to decide the question of the existence of free will? Because the answer depends on whether the universe evolves in a deterministic or non-deterministic way. This is a metaphysical rather than a merely psychological question. Indeed, Answering this question requires an understanding of not only psychology and reality at large, but their logical interface, the relationship of mind and reality. In other words, it requires a comprehensive theory of reality, uniting the subjective and objective sides of existence. Within the overarching framework of such a theory, psychological and neurological phenomena could finally be interpreted in a way that clarifies their deeper philosophical significance. So he's telling us this, and uh, and he's, where possible, introducing how uh, all of these seemingly um, separated considerations can fit together to uh, give us a better read on on free will in its larger. Uh, context. I did have one question for you, uh, Luke. There was, you were talking about, you weren't sure if, um, if Langan would be able to, or like what Langan had worked on, would be able to convince new atheists that there is an objective morality? Was that what you were wondering? Uh, just the way you were phrasing it, I wasn't uh, quite sure. Yeah, I mean, sure. 
Yeah, not, not Langen specifically, but, um, you know, in the context when, or like not in general, um, I was just talking in the context of, um, you know, when we, when we talked about game uh, theory and uh, this idea, you know, like that Jordan Peterson also talks about, you know, about this um, extrapolating basically from your old, from one single game to like a series of games and and the wider context and all of that um it's just that um i think lacking the you know the the metaphysical context that langan actually pro does provide right uh, um, okay. but just in, in isolation in isolation i mean not that it would convince new atheists anyway yeah. but um you know but it's just that the um uh, these kinds of like um attempts to underpin like an objective morality just purely on like rational grounds you know it, it just yeah. seems to me it, it doesn't really fly at the end of the day if you don't have some kind of metaphysics and even then you know um uh, i kind of have a uh, a little bit of a problem with when you know re religious people talk about um that, that there is just a moral obligation and that we somehow can't escape it, you know, and, and, and I'm not even sure, you know, like if, if it makes sense to always talk in terms of, you know, at the end of the day, we get punished, you know, for our sins, you know, I mean, for all we know, you know, we will be like, um, as eternally rich assholes, you know, like <laughs> if, we, if we, that's our path, you know, and, uh, yeah. uh so, um, I guess, you know, like the, 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 the perception that there is such a thing as good, you know, and that it's actually worthwhile striving towards it, it kind of must come, you know, from, from ourselves, you know, from, from, from a kind of intrinsic, um, uh, motivation and not so much, you know, like, um, oh, it's God commands me to do this. And if I don't do it, I go to help kind of thing. So that, that's kind of my, my, mm -hmm. my thinking on, on that. Yeah. Well, no, that, that, that brings up an interesting aspect of uh, morality and conscience, which I hadn't taken into consideration with all of this. Um, because it's, you know, like you say, or or what was it uh, when Rust, I think was his name in uh, True Detective. Um, you know, if you need a, a gun to your head to be moral or like uh, uh, riches in the afterlife in order to be moral, then you're still a piece of shit either way. Um, that's essentially what he was saying. Um, uh, yeah, maybe I wouldn't put it that way. Maybe, I mean, that's, yeah. that's like a super, that's a super <laughs> cynical you know, very rust way of putting it. Um, which is why I said that this isn't from me. This is from a character, but I think he illustrates a point, which is, and I, which is what you were talking about, I think, which is that, um, that just because there is like a divine purpose, you know, within the universe that it, that the universe like wants us to go in a particular direction, but that we are not, obligated to do that or morally commanded to do that and yet want to do that like how does that all kind of like tie into everything because it does seem to cheapen um my desire 
to, well, or maybe it doesn't, I'm not sure, uh, cheapen like my desire for doing good things in the world because God told me to, or is it because I genuinely want to do it? Like, where does that come from? How does this work? What is, um, is there such a thing as a right and wrong about it? Um, well, the, the, the thing that comes to mind for, for me kind of gets back to that idea of the stratification of self in that there's a different type of stratification going on. And this might be more like Dabrowski's multi-levelness, where if you look at the different formulations of morality, like you have the do this or bad things will happen, uh, or, or do, or do these, do this, and then good things will happen. So here's the carrot and the stick. So don't do these things, do these things, and you're all good. Well, it may be that for a given number of the population, that will be all that works. There will be some people for whom that doesn't work, and they will need to be um, like physically incarcerated to prevent them from doing certain things. And then there will be people who can internalize values in a way that that they kind of see the the unnecessary nature of physical incarceration in their case or the the from their perspective the the silliness and the simplicity of the you know god is carrot and stick or morality is carrot and stick and kind of internalize things and that there's a there's a utility to each of those different approaches depending on the the individual to whom they're applied so that like some people might just need the carrot and the stick because they for whatever about them they can't internalize certain values they can't see it in, a, in any other way or maybe that it's kind of like the an even an age stratification thing where they at a certain age you just can't comprehend a thing and you need to just have a set rule in place because even if it were explained to you you wouldn't understand why it's like even if it were explained to you why you really shouldn't get that face tattoo you know at the age of 14 you just can't understand why well you just have to list you know you have that in that case you need the carrot and the stick because you're too dumb to realize that when you're 30 you might regret it um or well i'll just leave that there um because some people never regret it, but, but imagine the, the most absurd <laughs> facial tattoo and then it can work for anyone. Okay. Um, so the, so yeah, I guess what I'm just saying is that, that taking into account that stratification in those different, those different, uh, different contexts, um, maybe there's a place even for that, uh, that kind of, that kind of morality, because, because maybe that's the only, maybe that's the only thing that works in certain cases. I don't know. Well, uh, yeah. Two things come to mind, Adam, when you ask that. One is uh, what we've discussed on a prior show with Timothy Ashworth's poem, Necessary Sin, and you know having having the law so internalized, as Harrison mentioned, that it it no longer becomes this uh, this thing that needs to be imposed outside of us. It, it's just kind of natural to us out of who we are and our connection to what's higher. But the other thing I think that's worthwhile to consider is that um, because of our so-called fallen state, uh, maybe it just, it's just helpful to accept that whatever good we do uh, at this time in this place as human beings is never going to be completely pure or uh, devoid of selfish intentions and... Um, it's never going to be completely selfless and uh, 
and you know what what God would have us be or or do in our minds, our, our perception of that, and that's part of the lesson too. You know, I can I can do something um, that I intend to be helpful and nice and good, and just because of my state of development, it, it, there's always going to be a piece of that that is um, impure or tainted or uh, or you know in some form less than uh, perfect. And the other, you know, the flip side is we wouldn't be here if we were, you know, this is our, this is our state. So, you know, it's nice to strive for. It's nice to, uh, um, it's a nice thing to want to uh, try to actualize within ourselves. I think not nice. I mean, it's, it's better than nice. It's, it's, it's good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there's, there's... Sorry, go ahead. No, uh, I'll save it. I'll save it for the end. All right. I just uh, wanted to say that that's another, you know, one of those problems for like objective morality, right? Um, that I, I also uh, thought about that, um, you know, there's this idea that there is this set of rules you know or like or the, the this perfect moral behavior that is kind of like objectively there um because uh as you as you implied um ilan it's 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 a matter of development right and um it is it might be that you know at a certain state of being um uh, something is actually morally good you know but um if you go further you know from a perspective further down the line you see things completely differently and then that is actually objectively good um and and you i think we can all see that in our lives you know if we pay attention um uh so we kind of like um e even on a deeper level you know might perceive something to be the right thing to do and we we are right in that moment right and and it we feel it with our whole being you know and and in hindsight um we might still say that was right but uh 10 years down the line we might say you know if now i was in that situation i would look at it in a different way and uh, maybe act differently so these can both be basically objectively true right so but you you just grown and you shifted your perspective and um and that's kind of like uh, one of those interesting um features i think of of morality that um uh, many philosophers they just don't take that into account right uh, that and that's also why you know we can have little idea what god you know is all about <laughs> and what his moral reasoning is i mean if if we can change so much in 10 years you know we ourselves you know what um how how would we know you know from how things look from the perspective of god um and yeah it was just wanted to make that point because as much as we rightfully you know bash the postmodern postmodernists and like relativists um who obviously um uh, you know like get it wrong um uh the, there are certain, you know, like ideas about objective morality, like on the religious front, let's say, 
that um, that seemed to be like too simplistic, you know. Mm -hmm. But several years ago, I, when I was thinking about this, I I can't remember if this is what I called it. But the basic idea was something like objective moral relativism, and that would be that uh, because often moral relativism is taken in the context of okay, you have country A and country B. I'm from country A. And I don't like country B and country B does things different than, differently than me. Therefore, country B is bad. And then the moral relativist will say, oh, well, country A is just as good as country B or country B is just as good as country A. They're just different. Um, so they're both good. And there's, there's no bad. You can't, one can't judge, judge the other. But I take an, an objectively moral, morally relativistic view where that there is, uh, there is better and worse in any different context. So for country A, there will be better and there will be worse. There will be ideally an optimal decision that, or an optimal state or, or goal that can be in place that will make everything better in the best way possible. That might be like unattainable. Maybe you can only get, you know, get there millimeter by millimeter, but it, it's at least the possibility. It's at, at least objectively real in the in the ideal sense. And, but same for country B, there might be given, given country B's conditions, there might be an objectively best way of doing things. And then there might be a, a best way for A and B to both do things for, for, for both of, uh, for them in themselves, for, you know, for country A and for country B and for country A and country B together, there might be the best possible mixture of things, but they might be slightly different on the ground in each country. So, that it's it's relative in the sense that it the 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 best thing possible the best the best course of action will be dependent on the conditions of on the ground but it's not relative in the sense that just anything goes in the sense that oh well every country's just or ever and every moral system and every religion and they're they're all just equally good just because they're different it's like that's just i that i think that's just nonsense it's like obviously some are better than others now when it get, it gets when you get into the nitty gritty, it becomes difficult to sort things out. But I think most people, when it when you know when it comes down to it, would agree. Okay, well, you know, even if I were in in country B, um, I'd I'd be thinking, okay, well, this is pretty bad. We can probably do things better. And so it not only does it allow for some non-relativism and the ability to again judge each other, you know, in a um, in a in a helpful matter, either to judge ourselves or to judge other nations to. To, to, to even even to the point just to say that they don't hold up to their own standards, their own standards, let alone ours. I think there's a valid place for that, but also that, um, yeah, just that it's that it is complex enough that you can take a relativistic position, but while still accepting that there will be objectively better or worse um, um, plans of action or even outcomes, and. Uh, uh, yeah. Any quick thoughts on that, or should I go to my, to my, uh, my final thought? What do you well, think? Are you, I think have I converted you sense. to objective? Have I converted you to objective moral <laughs> relativism? Yeah, I think we, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it sounds, it sounds like a good program. We should flat flesh that out. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'll create a movement. <laughs> it's a good slogan. <laughs> Object objective relativists. Yeah. <laughs> well, oh, I mean, okay. you need. Well, the, I think that's. Uh, you know, whether or not that's. Well, if you were to fully flesh it out, I think it would be. You know, fairly comprehensive because you do need something that's fairly flexible, but at the same time rigid. 
you need a good balance of, of both in order for it to be both generable and practically applicable. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, yeah, it m- makes sense. Yeah. I mean, because this you is know, something just also... to, to, to go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No, you go. Uh, no, go no, I, I was just <laughs> just want to throw in um, another complication. You know, as if we don't uh, don't have enough already. But uh, you know, I, I wrote about this at at some point too. Um, you know, this idea that we actually need like a really bad situation to grow, uh, <laughs> and so um, uh, you know, that's that's kind of like uh, a strange thing too to say. You know, because on the one hand, you know, the moral the moral, the good moral action would be like to ameliorate, you know, your society and, and everything around it. Right. But if you only learn, um, in bad conditions, then you kind of would want bad conditions. Right. And so, but you know, that, that is just a contradiction. So it's, uh, it, it's, it's really, um, tricky, you know, um, the, this whole thing about objective, morality you know if what's right what's wrong um yeah yeah that gets into like Gurdjieff's idea of conscious suffering is if you know like you say when you only uh learn when you suffer well you and if you're in a you know fairly stable situation you have to go out and seek uh the suffering make yourself suffer in in one way or another in order for you to learn and to grow in some kind of uh you know in some in some real way you know you know, if you're in a, you know, fairly, you know, good, stable situation or but, whatever. But even then there will be better and worse ways of doing that. Because if if you take that as your starting point, that that uh, the worse things are, the more I'm going to learn, that means I should make things as bad as possible. And and then you get into like the revolutionary territory where mm. we have to we have to make conditions so bad that people will <laughs> will revolt and you know things people will be so miserable yeah. that they'll that they'll finally and then so you're actively making everyone miserable but you've got a you've got good intentions right mm. and uh and then maybe lenin was like a, a like a super enlightened uh his, his <laughs> last his last dying along, breath you know? <laughs> he said you're welcome <laughs> that, there was an there was an anecdote about uh Gurdjieff, like, I think he was in New York for a while and he had an assistant living with him, like doing his cooking and his house cleaning. And at some point he said, no, go, you know, and, and she was like, or he said, you know, why I'm, I'm giving you all this help with everything. And he goes, that's the problem. I'm paraphrasing. This is way too comfortable for me. Uh, so right there where he was, he made things a, a greater challenge for himself, uh, precisely because he knew he was getting too comfy. He wasn't doing the work. He wasn't making himself, uh, you know, he wasn't giving himself the, the, the fuel to, uh, to, to, to move in the way that he needed to move, um, within himself. In that ideal sense, then, you know, in the better or worse ways of doing things, ideally, in the ideal, uh, it would be that you would learn without suffering or with as little or as minimal suffering as is possibly necessary or possibly required well or um it well even if we accept that to be true in the cases that it's not true then you would um ideally create your own suffering in such a way that you don't you know that you don't screw everything up for everyone else yeah um that and basically you have to know the difference you have to you have to have an idea of 
of how to screw things up um, just enough, just, just right <laughs> to, to create the, the correct conditions because yeah, otherwise you end yeah, up and, with and, like a Russian revolution. No, I think the, you know, the, the, the way out is basically to, um, to not need a totally uh, crazy societal breakdown for your suffering because you can find suffering, uh, you know, enough if you just, uh, don't shield you yourself from it right and yeah uh, i mean yeah maybe that's what I, maybe art, that's the essence of what you, i was trying to get it is like you don't need the external factor like you can create the suffering suffering necessary within yourself for yourself in order to learn whatever it is you need to learn without necessarily requiring like you like you just said a complete and total societal breakdown in order to reach the same conclusions results or whatever and the societal breakdown might be the sign that that people haven't been utilizing mm -hmm. the opportunities mm -hmm. available to them to actually learn these types of things in that ideal situation it's like okay that's not working okay well let's turn off the heat a little bit oh that's not working and then you know the dials set it, it, it's a it's set to go automatically right so there's no, no stopping it is if you don't do what you're supposed to do then it's just going to keep turning um to the point where everything falls apart yeah and ju just to round it out uh Gurdjieff had the idea that there was such a thing called useless suffering uh that you know was it just served no purpose it wasn't constructive it was just a you know, something that could have probably have been prevented and and didn't ultimately um, uh, have have use. <laughs> and that's, I think, you know, part of all of that. You know, is it useful? Is it really going to? And that's a question. That's not always so easy to determine either. Um, but yeah, certainly, you know, uh, looking at your own situation where you are and how you are and and what would be useful uh in forging something um that is constructive that is helpful that doesn't screw up uh things for others is uh is a good rule of thumb if nothing else well i was just going to bring up we kind of totally changed context but luke had said something about oh yeah it was about uh the kind of traditional religious morality about uh, the carrot and stick, as I put it. And, um, and so that reminded me of a video that I sent Elon the other day on Batman. And it was why Batman is the, is the best superhero. <clears throat> and to sum it up just really quickly, the, the main idea that I got from that is that, that uh, it comes from a, a quote from Nietzsche. Um, I can't remember the exact quote, but the, the essence of the quote was that, you know the the essence of morality is fear and if as long as you know you're you're being moral out of fear it's not you're, you know you're not moral um if you're just scared of of punishment then that's not a moral behavior and you know you're still acting like well you're still an immoral creature and so the idea being that and, and we all know this from experience that there are certain things that we that we'll do when we know we can get away with them and if there's no one watching us then the, and if, if there's someone in the same room with us we won't do certain things or if we know that we might be able to get that we might get caught we might do not do certain things but when you remove those those conditions then you're far more likely to do do certain things and it might be like really minor things or it might be in, in for some individuals it might be you know really extreme things but the thing about Batman is that Batman as a, as a vigilante 
who no one knows the identity of, he doesn't have those regular social um, strictures on him. He can do whatever he wants because no one knows who he is. He can get away from anyone. You know, you're, you're standing next to him. He turns away. They turn away. They turn back and, and Batman's gone. You know, they can't catch him because he's got, you know, all those uh, all those skills. So he, all, those, all those skills of deception. So he can he can essentially do whatever he wants. But the thing is, is that so he ha he has total freedom in that sense from what would ordinarily be the, the fear of ordinary morality or that motivates ordinary morality. And yet, um, he, he is still a good man as they put it. And as this guy put it in his, in his YouTube video is that he's still, that he, he still fights for good. He still, he, he limits himself that, um, that he doesn't, he doesn't rely on the, the fear of, uh, you know, th that fear-based morality of ordinary social interaction that he has is that he has his own inner compass and his own inner guide that prevents him from crossing certain lines or doing certain things. And that, uh, so by, by living in the darkness, you know, he is a very dark character, but, uh, but he, he both lives in the darkness and has no external, um, you know, constraints on his behavior. And yet he, despite those two things, despite having no external constraints and despite living in this dark world and being a dark, you know, a dark person with, with his own demons, he's still, um, you know, he's still a hero. Yes. And just to add a little bit to that, uh, you know, Jordan Peterson, of course, you knew I was going to add a little bit more. Uh, Jordan Peterson speaks <laughs> of, um, being a monster and the, uh, the usefulness and the, uh, the strength of of being able, being capable of doing monstrous things. But the power uh, that Batman exerts over himself through his rage, through his wish uh, for vengeance, um, is to withhold a, a kind of uh, scorched earth, uh, uh, totally destructive urge that exists within him in his, in his monstrosity, in his darkness. And to to shape it in such a way where his acts and behavior um, are helpful to society at large. So, uh, yeah. I'm Batman. All right. Well, um, I think that will do it for today. Um, Thanks, guys. This was great. Uh, I think uh, we all had a really fun, interesting discussion. I hope all of our listeners enjoyed um, this journey into the mind of Chris Langan. We'll be, probably be returning to this book um, at some future point, but definitely some of his other works as well um, in the future. And uh, hopefully more. We'll see. Um, so with all that said... Uh, everyone have a good evening, good night, good morning, whatever time it is you're listening, uh, hit smash like, hit smash hit like, smash. <laughs> hit, smash. hit smash, hit smash like, subscribe, and, uh, Batman. Bye, everybody. <laughs>